So we're at the back end of a series we call Innovation. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's a great word. It's a wonderful word. I don't know that when you try to think innovatively that you always innovate. I think innovation sometimes happens to you. But I think it's a biblical concept. And I tried to argue that with uh, a theology of justice and how it talks about, um, last week, church in culture and how we incarnate in a certain place at a certain time to be the people of God. And that that's an incredibly high calling and important thing. And I, I think that when we look at the New Testament, we see innovation happening all over the place. Even Paul, he gets sent. There was no such thing as missions. He gets sent by a group of guys hearing God speak to them uh, in, in a, prayer, a prayer time, a time of fasting. And so Paul takes his best friend and they head out on the road to just go tell people about Jesus. It was from the church of Antioch. It's where we get our name. And they just started going. And, and after one city, you know, you just kind of go to the next city and then the next. And then you get chased out of a city. So you run to the next city, you know. And, but pretty soon you're a thousand miles from home and you've just invented missions. International missions. Kind of what Jesus envisioned when he said, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's a fascinating thing that Paul, in some ways the first missionary, was persecuted along the road or chased along the road. He, he didn't necessarily innovate his way forward. He moved his way forward in obedience. And there's something so ridiculously powerful, uh, powerful about faith and living by faith that somehow God does stuff with us that we could never imagine and we look back and, and we go wow I look really creative or really dynamic or really like somebody who gets love but I don't know that I understood any of that the front way forward I was just trying my best to keep up with where I felt like God was leading me and so when we talk about innovation it's not just some kind of cheesy contemporary church way of packaging a sermon series I think there's something theological about that word that just says that when we follow the God of the universe who's sovereign and creative in his spirit that somehow when we're doing that he does things in us that we could never ask for or imagine as it says in Ephesians that we can do more than we would ask for or imagine through Christ um, who works in us I mean that's a ridiculous thing when you think about it. I mean, this is the age of Steve Jobs. I mean, who literally would have thought that one man in Silicon Valley, right, could take over the world with, a, with an Apple computer? I, I mean, actually, he didn't take it over with an Apple computer. He took it over with an iPod, right? I mean, that's really how Apple took over the world. But so he, in, he invented a way to sync and make simple how you get your digital music, and somehow because of that, created a monopoly in the digital music industry and how that tied to his computer and his software. And the next thing you know, um, we were all thinking differently, right? And we were all dancing with white earbuds in our ears against colored backdrops. You know, I'm, I'm, this is the age of Steve Jobs. Like we dream big. My wife's reading this book right now called Generation Me. Um, so she's probably the most pessimistic person in this room right now on, uh, on 
our generation, and, and Generation Me, they say, is anyone born in the 70s, 80s, or 90s? Um, so that's me. I'm Generation Me. Um, but she's reading this book, and it's fascinating, some of the stats in it about this idea of the possible. Like we're tyrannized with the possible, with how anything can happen and anything can be created. Uh, I just wrote a little blog post thing, op-ed article called Midnight in Paris. And what I was trying to say is when, when you think or are aware that somehow, some way you could be in Paris by midnight, any one of us tonight could be in Paris by midnight having dinner. I mean, it's the age of the possible. And when everything is possible at all times, all the time, what does that do to us? And so when I'm talking about innovation, I'm not talking about somehow becoming superhuman, that it's all about us and that we somehow make ourselves into these giants that do all things at all times, create all things at all times, innovate into everything, everywhere, but somehow just through simple faith and obedience, we're aware that God can, in the, in the maze of all of this, in the tyranny of all the possible, that God can somehow do something with us that would blow our minds if we knew it right now more than we would ask for or imagine. And so as we go forward this morning, I just want to share about a guy by the name of Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary uh, out of England. And Newbegin went, he was a missiologist as well, and he went, wrote on missions, was a missionary. And then in the 80s, early 90s, he came back to England and he started a movement or a revolution in thinking uh, with missiologists. Missiologists is just simply people who study missions. I don't want to use big words. Um, but the revolution was this. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it showed up in this book that really radically changed the evangelical landscape. But it's the gospel in a pluralistic uh, society or the gospel in a pluralist society. What he came back to was... You know, you go to India and it's all these different religions or different gods and you're trying to contextualize what does it look like to follow Christ in this pluralist society. Um, and he came back to England and, and what dawned on him was the pluralist society isn't somewhere else other than the West. The pluralist society is now the West. That was secular, uh, secularism, secular humanism, all the different... Um, religions we follow or different ways of being spiritual, what Newbegin came back and found was it's not like Western culture is Christendom anymore. It's not Christendom. It's a pluralist society. And so he began to say missions is this category of missions of sending people is, is not really the right way to see it. The right way is to realize that we all are incarnated or enculturated in a place that is not Christendom, that is a pluralist society. You and the person next to you are a Christian witness who is located in a place that is a pluralist society. And Newbegin began asking, what does that really mean for the gospel um, as we start thinking through Christian witness? And it's where the, the word 
missional was kind of born was out of Newbegin's thought and writings. And the modern church planting movement in America really got its impetus and exploded. Was this idea of how do we try and re-envision church as existing in a place that is a pluralist society where all Christians, all Christians, whatever your profession, whatever you do, whatever you don't do, whatever it is, that you are someone who is supposed to be a missionary in your culture. That we're supposed to have a missional mindset. That missionaries aren't just people that we send and they exist in a faraway land. Um, that this is actually something right about where we're located. Does that make sense? And what really comes to the forefront when we understand this is that the transactional way of seeing Christianity in some ways could be our greatest enemy. The transactional way of seeing Christianity or the gospel in some ways could be our biggest enemy. Because the transactional way of seeing the gospel, which simply means I'm accepting the offer of salvation from Christ, period. Which is really all about me as an individual living in an individualistic society and is something that in some ways is disconnected from the the rest of my life could be the greatest enemy because why? I begin to think I have the thing itself but I haven't really gotten the disease This kind of cheap transactional model in some ways has immunized me from the full-blown disease of the gospel or the story or of what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. Does that make sense? I'm going to to argue that, but I, I want you to get what I'm saying here. So when you begin to understand that we're supposed to be missional here, what we come to find is this transactional thing might be the greatest enemy because we see the gospel as a transaction that we have rather than a story that we enter into. We see the gospel sometimes as a transaction that benefits us, a one-time kind of purchase or whatever it might be, rather than understanding it as a story that we're entering into. The story that begins in Genesis goes through Revelation that speaks to God's people through time before we existed, right now as we exist, and, and the people who will follow us after we exist. That it's this storyline that speaks to everything about our life and our relationship with God. And so what Newbegin talks about, I want to read a long chunk here because I believe you can handle it. Um, so what Newbegin is talking about here is this revolution of understanding the full gospel and getting out of this, it's about me and God and me receiving salvation, a pass to heaven. And he's talking about uh, Africa and using Africa as a lens and then he's going to want to translate that over to the Western concept. But here we go. Ronald Wynn was sent as a missionary to a remote and isolated African community which had no contact whatever with Christianity. The Hambakushu of Etchan, Botswana. Wynn lived there with them for eight years, learning their language, entering deeply into their culture, sharing with them stories from the Old Testament, which resonated deeply with their own experience of exile and persecution and becoming part of their life before he took the momentous step 
of naming the name of Jesus and inviting them as a community to accept him as Lord. In other words, the gospel was seen from the very beginning as something which would affect the entire life of the community and all their customs and all their traditions. A decision for Christ would be a decision that put the whole of their shared life, their culture, into a new setting. The result was a profound change in the whole corporate life of the community. When contrast this with what happened in many parts of Africa, where a religion of individual salvation had been taught, along with a wholesale rejection and condemnation of traditional culture, the result has been, as he says, a superficial Christianity with no deep roots, and then later, a reaction to an uncritical and sentimental attachment to everything in the discarded culture. This raises, it seems to me, sharp questions for us in the old Western Christendom. The very way in which we raise the question with its dichotomizing of gospel and culture, that life is here and that's culture and gospels is some radically other ethereal thing where we get this transaction of salvation this dichotomizing of gospel and culture reveals the dualism in our thinking a purely individualistic christianity which reflects the individualism of our culture with its enthronement of the autonomous human reason as the judge of all things has to face as though it were a separate question from conversion. The matter of relating gospel to culture. I was recently in a meeting where a missionary home from Africa remarked that it had struck him that when his African Christian friends were faced with a difficult decision, he often found that although they were devout and committed Christians, it was often the traditional African way of thinking which determined the decision. It seemed to be quite unconscious of the fact that the same was obviously true of an English or American Christian. Let me say that again. I was recently in a meeting where a missionary home from Africa remarked that it had struck him that when his African Christian friends were faced with a difficult decision, he often found that although they were devout and committed Christians, it was often the traditional African way of thinking which determined the decision. Newbegin then says, he seemed, talking of this missionary, to be quite unconscious of the fact that the same was obviously true of an English or American Christian, that we claim to be very devout in our faith, but when pressed with a trial or a difficulty, it's our American way of seeing the world that dictates our response or our action. The individual has accepted the gospel, but the culture has not been converted. Or, to put it more accurately, one part of the person has been converted, but not the whole person. And then he sums it up this way. We must recognize the falsity of this dualism and acknowledge the fact that there is not and cannot be a gospel which is not culturally embodied. Does that make sense? We must recognize the falsity of this dualism and acknowledge the fact that there is not and cannot be a gospel which is not culturally embodied. Meaning, you can't think that the gospel is just this offer of salvation 
completely disconnected and divorced from every other area of your life that you're going to live out as a Christian or as an American, I'm sorry, doing very American things, all the while knowing that the most important little tiny Rhode Island part of your body has Jesus as sovereign and Lord. That that doesn't make sense. It's not what Christ ever envisioned. That when Christ called a person to follow him, he basically said, turn from the path you're on completely, wholeheartedly, all-encompassing, and follow me into a whole new life with a whole new agenda, a whole new heart, and I will be your sovereign over every part of who you are. That it will affect your worldview, affect your understanding of tradition and culture so that when you respond to anything, you respond to it very much from a Christ-like way, saying, what is it that the gospel would say to this as a teacher working in a middle school? As a business person out on lunch in town in Bend, as someone in Bend who travels, as someone in Bend who has children, as someone in Bend who doesn't have children, that whatever it is, you would filter it through a way of understanding culture and all of life from the perspective of the story of God's people beginning in Genesis, working its way all the way through Revelation. It's fascinating when you study missions that you see the gospel going to places. I remember in a class, uh, a former missionary was my teacher, my professor. He had been a, a missionary in the Philippines. And he was given this story of the Philippines and saying that you had this fascinating thing happening in the Philippines. I can't remember the exact years. Uh, I'm, I don't think exactly. So always treat details that I give you um, with, with a high degree of suspicion. Uh, I'm, a, I'm totally intuitive and it's all big picture and I think a lot of details are kind of right. But if I ever give you like stats, I'm just, I don't mean them literally. It's like in my mind they make sense in an intuitive kind of way. But I'm kind of thinking it was like the 80s and moving on uh, or 70s and moving on. But this, this missionary had been in the Philippines, and what had happened was this explosion of what they called a revival in the Philippines. People were accepting the Lord left and right, responding to the offer of salvation, basically kind of a altar call type model. And this had been going on for a number of years across a number of different missionaries, and so they all started writing home to their missions agency saying, the, the, the Lord is doing amazing things in the Philippines, the Holy Spirit is just going haywire there's this revival happening in the philippines send more money first then send more people second because god is doing something amazing and so they did missions agencies started sending money and people and sure enough it was exploding 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 until one day one missions organization sat down and had a, a data analyst kind of scratch your head and say this seems a little strange and they started crunching numbers and talking to other missions organizations and getting their kind of statistics and crunching numbers and then kind of scratch the head again and go, wait a second. In the past two decades, more people have gotten saved in the Philippines than there are people in the Philippines. What's, what's really happening? And so they started exploring. By the way, I don't know that that's exactly the right stat, but that's the idea, okay? <laughs> You get, you get the picture, right? 
So they started going, what's really happening here? What was happening was culturally in the Philippines, people were being very um, hospitable. So you're the, you're the person, you're the speaker, you're the one in the authority um, who's coming graciously enough to speak to us and you're asking us to do something. Well, we're not gonna deny you that. You want us to say this prayer? We'll say that prayer. We're being very, very nice in responding to you. And the next time we go to a revival, we'll do it again because you asked us to. Um, and, and it's an oversimplification, but culturally this is what was happening. And so they began to look into it a little bit deeper and say, that's not really conversion. And so they began thinking as missiologists, what do we really need to do if we're really going to talk about the gospel to these people in the Philippines? And they came to the same conclusion that we have to start in the book of Genesis and we have to tell the story of the fall and of sin and we have to tell the story of God calling a people to himself that would be his own and that would make his glory known among the nations and, and going to, to Judges, the book of Judges where the people would fall away, they would cry out to God, God would hear them, God would send a judge or a deliverer and then he would deliver them and they would be really excited and they would follow God for a period of time until they forgot and their memories kind of grew um, fuzzy and then they would fall away again and when they fell away again, they would find themselves in trouble and then they would cry out to God and then God would respond and you see this cycle working its way out of God kind of responding and then God had to do something different and so God then brings about a king and, and formalizes them as, as a nation and then for a while they're obedient and then they fall away and, and so God all throughout this is, is laying the groundwork of showing that ultimately he is going to have to work salvation for his people once and for all that his own right arm as it says in Isaiah 59 is going to have to work salvation for his people and so you see the prophecies beginning to crop up of what God had always intended to do, even beginning in Genesis when it said the offspring of the woman would deal the final blow to Satan, that, that the whole idea of sin and us falling would be ended by Christ when he came to deliver us. And so you see the story and, and you build it up and you begin to say, and so Christ comes and Christ creates this way out, Christ creates this opportunity Christ creates this path or this bridge to have this relationship with God as the mediator of a new covenant. And you have the opportunity to enter into that story. And it's real simple. All it costs you, all it costs you is everything. All it costs you is your life. But it's, it's the desire that you always had and didn't know you had. It's the place you always wanted to be but couldn't quite figure it out. And that step of faith is oh so scary but the minute you make it you realize you're finding your true home. And so we're inviting you to come into this and it will change everything and it will be difficult and I promise you suffering and I promise you a mess and I promise you that God sometimes will be incredibly mysterious in all of this but I promise you that it is the only way to life. And that apart from this, there is only death. And people begin to say, I want that story. I want to be found there. And I'm willing to sacrifice everything to, to look at my life completely different. That this is not some kind of casual thing that we're talking about. 
And so missiologists, whether it's Nubian or missionaries in the Philippines, began to realize something about the story and that pluralism requires that we go back and tell the whole story so that we get the whole person understanding that they will become disciples if they accept this offer of Christ, this good news, this gospel. So what is our great challenge? I think it's this transactional view, divorced of relationship, this fragmented view, this dualistic view that really feeds into our American individualism. Um, Brothers and sisters, we are so individualistic. I mean, I just, I grieve how individualistic I am trying to tell you how individualistic we are. I really think about myself all the time. And you know what? I'm glad that I love my kids as much as I do. There's something kind of cool about that. But you know what? I don't love anything else even close to as much as I love that. Because it's not mine. Your kids aren't mine. They could get hurt and I'd probably be sad, but then I would think to myself, glad it's not my kids. I'm ashamed of that. I'm so individualistic. I don't want to tell you all the ways I'm individualistic because then you'd be like, wow, he's really individualistic. And I'd know that that wouldn't be good for my own agenda to tell you that. (laughs) I had a friend who's a pastor who's one of the most authentic people I ever know. He was telling me recently, like, man, the elders at my church, they always send somebody with me. And, you know, people make fun. Oh, yeah, you just need a travel buddy. You know, it's a way to hang out with somebody or because you're, you know, lonely. He goes, no, that's not it at all. It's because I'm really not a good person (laughs) at all. And if I didn't have somebody with me on, on a trip, man, I don't know what would happen. Because I'm, I'm really not a good person. And I'm glad my elders, they take care of me that way. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's raw. And, I'm, and then I'm like, I'm glad I'm not like, you know, you know I mean, it's, <laughs> we're so infected with this thing that we, our, our whole paradigm of understanding the matrix of reality is from a skewed place. I was telling Tamara last night, I was like, we're, we're a bunch of kites trying to fly strings. And we don't understand why nothing works. We're a bunch of kites trying to fly strings. So I'm going to take us through a progression here that I've done before, but I want to do again because I think it's incredibly important to get it, the truth about what intimacy with God is going to look like and where it's going to come from. I wrote this sentence down by Ben Franklin. Here's the deal. He writes, the people heard it, approved the doctrine, and immediately practiced the contrary. I think we do that in the church. Uh-huh, amen, we're individuals. Preach it. And we're going to walk right out and do the contrary. Why? Because we don't realize how deep that disease goes. 
So here's the progression. Exodus chapter 3, let's start. The people called by God, the promise God, God makes, we'll start with Moses. Turn there with me uh, if you can. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we get God hearing the cry of the oppressed. God hears the cry of the oppressed. I told a group recently, I said, if we want to say we have the same heart as God, maybe we also have to have the same ears as God. Because God always hears the cry of the oppressed. He doesn't segment and sometimes go, oh, that just doesn't matter to me. When he hears it, he cares and he's moved. And so God is telling Moses that the cry has come. And God says in verse 9, So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people up out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I'm prophesying to you. I'm, I'm not even telling you, go try to make this work. I'm calling you to go give it your effort. Let's see if this could happen. He's saying, I'm calling you to do this and I will make it work. It is established already. You're my tool that I'm going to use to do my will, but it's my strength that will go before you. Let's turn to Joshua. Joshua, obviously taken and commissioned by Moses to be the one who's going to follow after him. So you see this con uh, continuity. First with Moses leading the people, and there's always God represented as a, a cloud or a pillar of fire that goes before the Israelites. And then God says this as he's commissioning Joshua at the begin, beginning of the book of Joshua. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place uh, you set your foot, as I promised to Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the left or the right that you may be successful wherever you go. I told you I don't care about details. I just accidentally switched right and left in the order that it is in Scripture, which is, I think God is okay with that. But see, I, I don't even get details right as I'm reading them. It's funky in my head. Um, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be very careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you where 
wherever you go. I'm setting up a pattern here, but I want you to catch it. There's a pattern in Scripture that's a pattern of commissioning. Okay? When God commissions somebody to do his will, God sets up a pattern of saying, I'm going to use you. It does not depend on you. Therefore, don't let your emotions go up and down as if it does depend on you. There's a a movie that came out with... uh, Will Smith recently, I've only seen the preview, haven't seen the movie, but there's something he says in the preview that's really wild. It's one of these sci-fi movies, it's called After Earth. So he and his son, real life son, um, uh, Jaden Smith or whatever, they're in it. But he says something that fear is not real. Okay? Um, Danger is real. He says, don't get me wrong, fear is not real. You do not have to have fear. Danger is real. And I remember hearing that. I'm like, that's the way it's supposed to be for the people that God uses. He says, listen, I'm going to lead you to fight battles and to take over lands. Guess what? You're going to be in danger. But don't be afraid. Why? Control your emotions because although the circumstances present one way, you don't need to have the emotions that go with that because you know something. I'm telling you something. I'm promising you something that I will go with you. I will be intimate with you. I will be next to you. I will take care of the challenges that you have because it does not depend on you. It depends on me. So you can bank on that. You trust me. You walk with me. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is like the one dude in Scripture I, 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 I do not want to be. And I won't explain to you why. If you don't know the story, maybe you won't know. I, I, I have health issues. I lost a whole lot of weight. Thought I was dying. My wife thought I was dying. Doctors thought I was dying. Um, and... Tamara always complained of being cold ever since we got married. And I just thought she whined a lot. And then when I lost all that weight and I'm trying to gain it all back, I, I get cold. My nose gets cold. My toes get cold. I get cold. I can't stand being on long airplane rides because my nose and my toes get really, really cold. You know, especially if I'm wearing flip-flops. Like, and I don't like being cold. And so now I'm like, wow, Tamara, like, wasn't whining. Um, and then I feel like a bad husband that I would ever have thought such a thing. And I'm like, wow. And then I realize after a while, I'm actually whining more than she ever whined. And then I'm like, what does that say about me? I'm the guy, and I, I whine more than she does by being cold. Listen, I would do a lot for you. I would not be cold for you. I've decided I don't like being cold. And if it required being cold on your behalf, I think I would falter, I would stumble, and I would fail as, as a man of God. So do not ask me to be But I'm realizing I'm, I'm really weak. <laughs> I, like that would be my, my boundary, is cold. And so I look at guys like Jeremiah and I look at some of my friends and I'm like, you know what? They're great people. Paul, um, he's a great man. 
their boundaries were a heck of a lot further out. What they were willing to endure uh, for people on behalf of God. Right? Um, I hear my wife in the back of my head. My wife says I tell stories of myself sometimes that are not true and too extreme and give people the wrong idea. And I, like, I hear her voice in the back of my head saying I overstated that one. I would be somewhat cold for you <laughs> for a certain amount of time. I want to I wanna make sure you don't, that I'm not telling it too bad on myself. All right. Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 4, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I anointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. This is kind of the, the same reaction that everybody has. I don't really know how to do this. I'm just a, I'm just a business person. I'm just a stay-at-home parent. I'm just a 20-something. I'm just a whatever. I'm an introvert. I'm a lawyer. I, 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 I'm not the extrovert. I'm not the whatever. Like, there's always that immediate reaction of, if you're asking me for everything to bend this way to accomplish your will, God, like, that immediately raises a tension point that says, I don't know how to overcome this. I really don't know how to hurdle this. I mean, I'm not saying no, God, but it doesn't seem practical, really. That's always the first reaction that people have. And, and God says, he'll immediately take it. it, it really, um, I know who you are. You're not telling me anything I didn't already know. And um, that doesn't really matter. I've got that taken care of. I got that handled. I'm bigger than that. And so he says to Jeremiah here, the Lord says to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, says the Lord. There's something about the New Testament that's fascinating. Uh, Matthew 10, 19, Jesus says almost the same thing to his disciples. He says there's going to come a time when people arrest you. But do not worry. Don't have the emotion that goes with it. You're in the lion's den. There's lions there. But don't look at that part of it. Don't have the emotion. Danger's real, but don't have the fear. Don't worry about what you're going to say or how to say it. For at that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. God covenants to go with his people to accomplish his will with the calling that he has given to you. I think that's the band. I hope it's the band. Either, either that's the band or I'm really doing a bad job. <laughs> Do you guys hear that? God is covenanting when he calls you to give your life to him that somehow in that the Holy Spirit will work with you and that it's not really that you got to be so smart or have it all figured out, but it's your faith and your obedience coupled with God's power and presence that will make this all work. And that is the life we all want. That is where significance comes. That is where he said to Joshua, success will come. It's a fascinating thing. So when we come to Matthew, the end of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission, 
There's something fascinating happening that hardly ever gets talked about. And it plays right into our individualistic worldview. We get to the end here. Right before Jesus is going to leave. These are the last words in the book of Matthew. We'll begin it in verse uh, 16 of chapter 28. So Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. That's always the case. And then Jesus came to them and he said, listen. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I speak as one in authority. In other words, God has asked me to speak in his stead. Okay, then what does he say? He's basically setting up what what is coming next. The next words are coming as if coming from God himself. Go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm telling you as the one in authority, this is your task. Go and make disciples of all nations. And it's not just a transaction It's teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. That they would leave everything, come follow. That they would submit everything under the lordship, my lordship, my kingship. That they would recognize God's sovereignty over everything. That they wouldn't look at cultural things and find themselves being swayed that way. But that they would realize they're citizens of my kingdom. That their real citizenship is in heaven. They're sojourners, pilgrims, strangers on this earth. That ultimately their allegiance is here and should color and shape all of what they do and the nature of their transactions. When I go to other countries or if you've gone to other countries, the fact that you're a stranger there for a little while shapes everything you do. Everything you do. So Jesus says, all authority has been given. Therefore, I say, go make disciples, not just a transaction, make followers that are going to be obedient and walk in faith and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, okay, Now here's the promise. What happens in the Old Testament with commissioning? What's the last part? I already gave you the answer. Come on now. What happens? What's the last part? The promise of the presence of God. Such that this really doesn't depend on human effort, but that we're walking alongside as co-laborers, leaning on a God who is big enough to establish all he has said he will. So Jesus says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So listen, I have the authority. I'm commissioning you to do this. And guess what? I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be right there the whole time. I'm going to be in the lion's den with you. I'm going to be in the mess with you. My power will go with you. The Holy Spirit will be able to give you the right words, the right actions, help you navigate the circumstances, whatever it is, you need to know that I'm with you. We get to do this together. What do I lament 
about American Christianity is that we have this unbelievable need for this experience of God. We all clamor for relationship and intimacy with God and we really want that as a felt experience of closeness with the full like show to the whole thing and we want to do Bible studies on, on closeness with God or how to know God or how to have God, how to whatever because we want that, don't we? Of course we want that. If I'm an individual living in an individualistic society, what's the greatest thing that this individual would want for self? A piece of God. I would want God here and that I would be able to know that I'm such a good person. Why? Because God, I got God and he's here. And I'm better than you because I got more of him than you. We, we hunger for having that relationship with God. And I've been to countless sermons where that relationship and intimacy is promised to people based on this passage of scripture. God will be with you always. You don't need to be afraid. You go live your life triumphantly and just know that God loves you and he'll be with you always. And I, I always go... Really? Maybe, but really? Because that's not all of what Jesus said. The promise was conditioned on the commissioning. The promise was an encouragement for those who had been commissioned. The promise was something that we could grab hold of and, and, and have and digest as we are going on the road of witness as we're thinking and behaving missionally. And I'm saying, so if we just divorce the promise from the commissioning, can we really offer that to people? Like, is that really what Jesus is saying? Is go do all your American things, fill all your time with all that stuff, and think only about yourself, really, ultimately, fundamentally, even though you're not going to tell yourself you're always thinking only about yourself. But, but go ahead and go do that. But because you have a transaction that happened in a service somewhere where you accepted the call or the invitation to become a Christian, because you did that transaction, we're going to tell you that, that God is duty-bound now to always be with you and never forsake you. And I, I just think something shady's going on there. Do you, see, do you see the shadiness? Like I'm not saying God's not with you or them or whoever it might be, or me, whoever's, whoever this is. What I'm saying is I don't know that we can promise something that isn't what Jesus promised. Jesus promised that as we follow, as we obey, as we walk in faith, with this commission to go and be his witnesses and to make disciples, to live missionally as strangers in this earth, that as we do that, we can lean in to him. And if none of that other stuff is even reaching our ears or going through our minds, I don't know the confidence that we have about the ability to lean in to him. Maybe he's standing back so that we'll fail 
so that we'll start over again maybe with a different worldview or a paradigm for what our Christianity could look like. Maybe we've, we've got kind of a false Americanized Jesus that follows us around like a genie or like the mother of a junior high boy because that's what I, I was like as a junior high kid. Mom exists to clean up my mind. You know what I mean? Like, is that what we've done to Jesus? Or is he really above us and we're like, whoa, this is gonna cost me everything. And it's a bit scary. But there's nothing left for me now that I understand this. There's no other decision but to go all in. Let me close by saying this, and we're gonna, I'm gonna bring up, we're not doing the special music just yet, I'm gonna bring up a friend, um, set something up for tonight. There's a, a book out, it's like one of those tipping point books, Malcolm Gladwell type books. It's called Anti-Fragile. It's a fascinating book, and I think as Christians we should read it because what the argument in this book really is is that we think we have this illusion that everything's fragile so that uh, when things are broken, it's bad. You know what I'm saying by that? Like we, we immediately make the connection, breaking, trial, uh, bad. And in this book, what this author argues, it's not a Christian book, it's just a sociological book, is that there are a lot of things that are designed such that the, their, the best result or their thriving comes from the testing or the trial. He calls these things anti-fragile. I would submit to you that Christians that are thinking Americanly, that we walk around afraid of fragility, afraid of pain, afraid of trials, afraid of suffering, afraid of, afraid of going backwards. We have this myth of progress, don't we? I know a lot of friends that went through bankruptcy and I think they would tell you, man, the hardest part was just accepting that we were gonna go backwards. Because in America, it's all, go- but we have this, this myth of progress. But anti-fragile is that somehow, sometimes the suffering is what creates a greater dependence on God. Sometimes in our weakness, we find that we're strong. Sometimes we realize that in the messiness, we find the creativity and the power of God. God took dust and fashioned people out of it. God got his hands dirty at the beginning of creation. God is an artist that puts his hands on clay and shapes it. Jesus spit into the dirt, rubbed it together to create salve, to fix somebody's eye, and wanted to show the earthiness and the messiness of it all. And sometimes I think to myself, what would Whole Foods charge if they could get a hold of that mud? Um, Which is my own issue. I wrote down this sentence a couple days ago. Messy, messy, the way I feel today, the way maybe some of you feel today, messy is something we have a natural aversion to. But when redemption is our language, we realize that every mess is an opportunity. Messiness is something that we have a natural aversion to. But when redemption is our language, when our God is a potter, then every mess is an opportunity. Are we willing to see ourselves in the story rather than just the beneficiaries of a transaction? Let's not be kites trying to fly strings.